crowds, the crowd, <laughs> the choir has been working extremely hard and it's paid off, hasn't it? They sound very good. Appreciate the work that they put in each and every week. Uh, one of the few programs that I watch on television is uh, Chopped. I don't know how many of y'all watch that on the Food Network. In case you've never seen it, the premise of Chopped is very simple. They get four chefs from around the country that compete against each other to make the best food, and they win $10,000 if they're the champion that's left at the end of the competition. But what makes the show really interesting is, they, <clears throat> is that each chef is given uh, the same basket of four mystery ingredients, and whoever thinks up the ingredients in those baskets are wicked, evil people. Because they come up with things like this. You'll hear Ted Allen say, open your baskets. Your ingredients are two-day-old fried calamari, ketchup, smoked Vienna sausages, and marshmallow cream. You have 30 minutes to make a dessert. Your time starts now. And you're going, Vienna sausages and dessert. No, this is nasty. Well, in the program the other day, they taught me a word that we're going to use this morning. It's a very... It's a high-powered word. The word's deconstructed. I watched somebody take a disaster and turn it into something really cool. This, this girl was running out of time, and she was making this dynamite chicken sandwich. That was her goal. Out of pastry dough was going to be the bun. It just sounded like, you know, something you put pumpkin spice in. It'd be really nasty, you know? And so she's going to do this thing, and she runs out of time, so she just throws everything on the, on the plate, just throws all the parts on the plate. And when they lay it in front of the judge, she says, I've made for you a deconstructed chicken sandwich. Deconstructed, and it won. Deconstructed means that in a restaurant, you can charge somebody $5 extra for not putting their hamburger together. They have to do it themselves. It's deconstructed. So we're going to deconstruct this morning. We're going to take this story that, that, uh, we, that we read just a few moments ago, and we're going to take this thing apart and see how this fits together and how this can make a serious difference I'm praying that it makes a serious difference in somebody's life, and I hope we can all see ourselves in this story. In Jerusalem, along the north wall of the city is a gate called the Sheep Gate, and right near that is the Pool of Bethesda, that means House of Mercy. There are five porticos that are built there. I cannot for the life of me remember what we call these things now, but people have them in their backyard it's like a, a thingy, and you sit under it, and it's sort of cool. They called them porticos, and that's the best I can do with it. It was really pretty where it was, and that's where people came to be healed. The, the, the story was is that an angel would stir the water up, something happened in that water, and the first person to get in that water would be healed. And so all of the disabled people in town came there to wait for the stirring of the waters, and that's the place that Jesus decided to deliberately go to. John says that it's by the sheep gate. It's called the sheep gate for a very simple reason. That's where the sheep go in. But see, when the sheep go in the sheep gate, they don't come back out again. The sheep that go through that sheep gate are meant for sacrifice <clears throat> in the temple. It's the only gate that they were allowed to use. No lamb would ever come in and then go back out again. 
And I believe there's some foreshadowing going on in this story here because if you remember back in John 1, when we studied that, John the Baptist saw Jesus and he loudly declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we know that Jesus must die because that's what happens to a lamb. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus is going to go one day and he's not going to leave alive. He's going to enter in as the sheep, the Lamb of God, and he's going to be crucified. Verse 18 tells us very plainly, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Now Jesus went to the place by the sheep gate where the sick people were. He picked one person out of the crowd, just one, we'll find out why. He was been disabled for 38 years in the middle of all of those sick people in the middle it's like all of y'all sitting out here and I go up to one of you and pick one of you out at random that's what appears that that's what Jesus did and then he healed him and that's the story so now we're going to deconstruct it we're going to start with verse 23 and we're going to work our way backwards to see how all the explanation fits together for this guy that Jesus healed John 5, 23 says, anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is plainly saying that he's God's Son. We have lots of people that have lots of arguments about lots of things. Muslims would certainly say that he's not God's Son, that he was a prophet. Scripture is saying right here very plainly that he is God's Son that makes him equal to God. Now, what does this mean to us? Look at verses 20 through 22. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing and will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I don't know if you've noticed, but we tend to use the word sovereign an awful lot. Sovereign means that it's a person that possesses supreme or ultimate power. Now, what does that mean to us? What are two things that God can do that no one else in all of creation can do? What are those two things? First, he raises the dead and gives them life. And secondly, he has the power to judge people. Nobody else in all of creation has that power, the power over life and death. But you know, this isn't as simple is what it sounds like. As you sit and you think about this, life doesn't necessarily mean heartbeat life. I listened to Kathy pray a few minutes ago, and she's praying exactly what I'm talking about here. So many times we've seen folks who have a heartbeat, but have been dead for years. They have a heartbeat, but they're stuck. They're frozen. Something's happened, and life stopped at that minute. Dead doesn't mean not having a heartbeat, but dead means having no life. It means having no hope, having no future, having no escape. You might as well be dead because you're as good as dead right now. At least that's what you think. And we see people like that, don't we? Don't we see people like that? Haven't we been people like that? Hasn't there been a moment in your life where you were stuck, you didn't see a way out of a situation that this is the way it's going to be and it's going to be this way forever? Maybe that's who you are right now. You are stuck. All right, we're deconstructing. 
verse 19, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Okay, we said we were going to study John so we could learn Jesus, so we could see Jesus and know him when we saw him. All right, Jesus is telling us here the things that he does. He says, I only do what the Father does. And what does the Father do? He gives life. You understand he gives life. He doesn't give us airplanes and cars and boats and trains and all. He gives life. That's what he does. First and foremost, he gives life. That's only what the Father does. Jesus does that. It's his job to give life. We said we were going to study John so that when we saw Jesus, we'd know him when we saw him. If we see a Christ follower who's trying to help somebody else have a life, what are we seeing? We're seeing Jesus with skin on. That's what we're seeing. We need to learn to look that way and see that way and not just saying, oh, isn't it nice that he's helping them, but look and understand that Jesus is at work in that person's life right that minute that we are seeing Jesus. He does what the Father does. He gives people life. Verses 17 and 18, Jesus responded to them, My father's still working, and I'm working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, this is so plain. Make a note of this. When you hear people say that Jesus never said that he was God, the Bible never claims about Jesus' divinity, here's your verse to lay them out. This is the drop the mic moment. Jesus said, God, his own father, making him equal to God. He claims his divinity here. He is the only divine that's walked on the earth. God, come among us. This is Jesus. Now, this is the bun that sort of holds our stuff together. Three things to, to remember right quick, that Jesus is God, he only does what God does, and God gives life. That's what holds this story together. Jesus is God, he only does what God does, and God gives life. Therefore, Jesus gives life. Jesus gives life. Understand, Jesus gives life. Now, let's get the little condiment section of our story here. I told you once about stopping at Johnny V's on my way to a, a, a client where I was supposed to make a presentation years and years and years ago and I was going through making and I was hungry and I stopped at Johnny V's and they put this little mustard sauce stuff on their, on their hamburgers and I bit into it and it was like a geyser and it just shot on my white shirt. Not some place like on my tie so I could take it off and just pretend I meant to come without a tie. No, it's like here. So that when you go in, everybody can look at you and say, oh, you had mustard, didn't you? Yeah. Have you ever had the situation in your life? Have you ever had a situation where you went to a cookout or maybe you're doing a party for kids and you've got hot dogs and hamburgers and mustard and ketchup and you've done all the stuff for everybody and you get through and you've cleaned your hands and you washed your hands and then you go somewhere and you look down and you've got mustard around your fingernails you ever done that yeah you know and you know it's oh <laughs> yeah you had hamburgers right yeah I did and you wash and you wash and sometimes Sometimes you're nasty enough, and I'm sure it's just me that nobody else has ever done this, but you have like a stain there 
and it, and it doesn't go away right quick. It takes a lot of washing to make that go away. What happens in this story right here is the stain on our hands for the rest of the story. All the way out to the end of John chapter, what is it, John chapter 21 verse 25. This is going to be the undercurrent of the story all the way to the end. It says, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, I want you to think about this. Some of us have heard this so many times, you're asleep already. Don't go there yet. Stay with me. I want you to listen. I want you to think because this story, it's good. It's good. Regardless of how warm and touching anything is from here on out, Regardless of, of how warm and fuzzy Jesus makes us feel anywhere in this story going forward, no matter how much good Jesus does, you listening? No matter how much good Jesus does, no matter who he brings comfort to, no matter who he strengthens, he can feed 5,000 people, walk on water, call Lazarus out of the grave. No matter what happens and he does, there's a group of people who are going to be trying to kill him from this moment forward. doesn't matter what he does. And the people that are trying to kill him are good people. And this is where I think we have done a horrible disservice to the Pharisees. We make these people out to be the most evil people on the face of this planet. They weren't evil. These people were solid citizens. They were excellent church folks that we would have admired if we had lived with them. We would have aspired to be like them. We just did our deacon election. We would have elected these people deacons. We would have them for Sunday school teachers. If they taught in the public school system and they ended up being one of your child's or grandchild's kid, uh, teachers, you would be thrilled to death that your child was in that class. Because these folks, these folks were fine, upstanding folks who knew how life was supposed to work. I have a phrase that I've even said myself, and I'm ashamed that I've said it. You get young people into the church, and they want to do things. And you lean back with your, with, with your old curmudgeons, us, me, and we say, they don't know how to do church. That's it. Because the Pharisees knew how to do church. The Pharisees knew how to do church, and they imposed the rules. And Jesus, we do not comprehend how radical that man was. If he came into our church, we would, our, our throats, a lump would go into our throats because he's so radically different. And in this story, from this moment forward, no matter how good he is, they will show him no redemption. They will show him no mercy. They will only want to kill him. And why? Why? Why do they want to kill him? Power and tradition. I've told you all this story before. My first contentious conference 
It's the very first time that I had a church conference that a church member felt that it was their right to stand me up in front of everybody and chew me out ragged. And they did it because the church doors needed to be either painted or stained and their vote lost. It had nothing to do with paint or stain. It had everything to do with tradition and power. And for the first time in my life, the first time in my ministerial career, I found out that folks might stand up and sing, Jesus means all the world to me, but they don't mean it. And we'll argue and say that we do with all of our hearts, and I'm as guilty as everybody else. Power and tradition beats Jesus hands, hands down over and over and over and over and over and over again. Pastor, how could you say that? Do you remember the statistics I gave you about Atlanta? Let's move it away from gray so it won't be quite so uncomfortable. Y'all are really, really quiet, and I'm sweating just a little bit, so I know where I'm at. In Atlanta, 166 churches in 1960, they have 35 now. Why? Did everybody move out of Atlanta? Did everybody in Atlanta get saved and it's just one big church? It's because power and tradition said that those people that we're reaching don't know how to do church. And we don't want them in here. Because they're going to do crazy stuff, and their hair's going to look funky, and they might smell just a little bit, and we just got brand new pews. You know it's true. You know it's true. That's what killed Jesus. Power and tradition. We've got the bun that holds this thing together that's Jesus. We've got the condiment on it that's going to stain our hands for the rest of this story that we know that in everything that's going to happen from here on out, Jesus is going to die. And when we read all of these stories in John, all of these good things that are going to make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside, and Jesus is such a good guy, we've got to remember as we're saying all of those things that Jesus is going to die. That it doesn't matter what he does or where he goes or how he says it or what clothes he wears, Jesus is going to die. That's a fact. Here's the meat of the story. How did this man get in this condition? After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. I'd never thought about this, but every commentary I read that talked about this verse said the same thing. They're saying that it, what is implied in this statement is the man committed some sin in his life that brought about his disability. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. His disability wasn't a punishment of God. It's not saying that at all. What it is saying is that whatever sin he committed caused that disability. And that's 100% I've got from the news an illustration for that. Y'all know this week a Georgia boy died from a hazing incident at LSU. Y'all see that in the news? Died from his... his Blood alcohol level was 0.4648, some just astronomical number. His blood alcohol level, and, and, and he had issues, and, and he died. 
What was the sin involved there? Well, the sin was drunkenness, period. Some of you don't like me to mention alcohol. I hate it. Stinks to be you. The Bible says plainly don't get drunk. There it is, period. Don't get drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. All right, part of their hazing thing was for the pledges to take a drink every time they missed a question. And either this kid knew nothing about his fraternity, which I doubt was true. What I suspect was is they asked questions that there was no way in the world these kids would know the answers to those questions. And so every time they missed a question, they had to take a drink. And he took so much that he died. He could have stopped at any point. He could have left at any point. Listen, guys, I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. Your mom and dads didn't fall off the turnip truck. And if we'll all be honest, we'll all know that every sorority and every fraternity at every college, maybe I'm wrong, but I went to Mercer University and I knew who the drunken team was and I knew who the rowdy Confederate team was and I knew who the straight-up team was and I knew which sorority put out and I knew which sorority didn't before they ever had rush week. I knew what I was getting into if I went to join any of those. I can't believe that this guy didn't know. He chose the fraternity that he chose the fraternity that he wanted to join. By his choice, he joined up with these guys and it cost him his life. Sin has consequences. God doesn't have to zap you from heaven and, and, and strike you with lightning to punish you for sin. Sin has consequences. And the commentators say that this disabled man did something 38 years ago that he paid a dear price for. A price so dear that for 38 years he sat by the waters of Bethesda staring into it, waiting for the waters to stir, and yet knowing the whole time that he was waiting for those waters to stir that he'd never make it into it, never in a million years, sitting there every day regretting the decision that he had made that had caused him to be in this mess. Verses 6 and 7, when Jesus saw him lying there and realized he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. I've always thought that was the most ridiculous question for Jesus to ask in a million years. you got a man sitting there for 38 years who has been disabled. His life, if have no clue what age he was, but let's say he was 12 years old when he made his stupid decision. Now he's 50, sitting here by the edge of the water, and Jesus says, do you want to get well? But I think understand now. I think understand why he did. See, Jesus walked into the gate at Bethesda, 
beautiful site. There's a large pool, a couple of smaller pools. Sort of makes a five-sided pool. Each one of those pools has a colonnade, a portico where people could sit. There's sick and hurting people all over the place. And Jesus walks in and spots one nameless man. He knows, because he is God, that he that, that man has been coming here for 38 years. And the man just sits and stares into the water. Creatures of habit that we are... I suspect this man sat in the same place every day that he came. And you know how I can say that? I can almost look at you and know where you're going to be sitting in here every week. Because that's what we do. We find our place, we carve our name into it, and that's where we sit. And this guy's done this every day for 38 years, sits there staring into the water, waiting for the water to move, offering healing to somebody, knowing that it's not going to be him. Every day. I think at least a few of us can relate to this, if not all of us. Maybe this is you right now. Maybe something's happened in your life, you know? You made a bad job decision. You made a bad relationship decision. You made a bad friend decision, a bad financial decision, a bad marriage decision. Maybe you did something at some point in your life that you desperately, desperately, desperately regret. And you'd give almost anything in the world to fix it. But you can't. And you've got in your head that there's one way that it could work, that there's one solution that ought to work if only that opportunity would happen, if only they would text me back, if only the phone would ring, if only the email would come, if only the letter would come. And you sit there and stare watching the phone, the computer, the mailbox like a zombie because really that's what you are. The undead, you're dead with a heartbeat, waiting for somebody to rescue you. And you know in your heart that that rescue will never, ever come. This man has been that way for 38 years. For 38 years, he's had people walk by him. Have you ever noticed that People always call at the last two minutes of a football game. What's the matter with you people? Mama, are you watching the Georgia game? Uh Uh-huh. Why are you on the phone with me? Hang up. Okay, so your leg fell off. It'll be there two minutes from now. Hang on. It'll be just fine, honey. Stop. The kids, all of you that have little kids, when do they come in? And the murderer is, mommy. (laughs) I'll tell you the murderer is, me. I'm killing you. Because now I, (sighs) have you ever had that happen? And maybe, guys, maybe it was your wife coming in, you know, and, and something's going on. And it's the last two seconds of the Michigan game, and they're about to tie that sucker up. And you're staring at that TV, and she can say anything she wants to. Honey, the house is burning down. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see this. That's what this guy did. People would come talk to him. 
They'd walk by him. They'd say things. He never took his eyes off the water because that water is going to stir. And I've got to see that water when it stirs. And if I look up at you and I look back around and it's stirred, I've missed my chance. But I know good and well I'm not going to get in there anyway. But I've got to keep watching because maybe today's the day that something's going to happen, that something's going to fix me, that today will be my day if only. And Jesus says, do you want to get well? And slowly the guy looked up from the water he looked up at Jesus he looked away from the solution that was never going to fix his problem and he gazed into the eye of the son of God who only does what God does and what God does is give us life and he looked into his eyes and Jesus looked at the man and said get up get up. I like to think there's an undercurrent under that that says, get up. You've sat here long enough. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well. And 38 years disappeared. And the man was reborn. Jesus did what God does. He took a dead man and he gave him life. Listen, 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 listen. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what might be going on inside of your head, inside of your heart. I don't know where you might be stuck if you're the person that is stuck. But listen, Jesus gave him no shame. Do you understand me? Read the story. Jesus didn't scold him. Jesus didn't make him have shame for his bad decisions. He didn't remind him of his sin. He didn't make the man pay some huge emotional price in order to be healed. He simply told this man who had suffered pain and shame and regret for 38 years, he simply said, get up. Your life is not over. You're free. Get up and go. If this, is your, if this is your story, if this is your story, get up. Pick up your bed of suffering. Forget the shame that you feel. You're the one carrying that burden, not Jesus. Forget the regret that you feel. You don't need all of that anymore. Jesus is saying, that doesn't matter. He's saying, get up. Get on with your life. Follow me. I will make you whole. Follow me. Father, please, Holy Spirit, cut through the noise of our lives and plant this message, Lord, into somebody's heart. Lord, sometimes we smile with smiles that are painted on with makeup with pills we power through our days with nothing but the resolve to see that day end and to go to bed and maybe have a dream that'll be a pleasant dream we hope Lord I don't know if there's anyone in here anyone in the chapel Lord anyone on YouTube that's going to hear this and realize that this is them and that they are fighting demons But the Holy Spirit, you know who they are. And you have the power of life and death. 
Lord Jesus, give us life. Give us life. Set us free. And Lord, we know Jesus was killed by good people. People who would not see the good that that was being done. They could just see that he wasn't doing things the right way. Lord, help us not to be those people. And Lord, you're allowing our world to change and it makes us sad. Those of us who have gray hair grieve over our loss. So many things of our youth are never going to be the same again. Help us, Lord, to hold those memories close and to cherish them, but to boldly go where you lead us to right now. It's going to be difficult. And and church people of all ages will be tempted to sin, and Lord, we will sin. But Father, give us the resolve to be quick to repent and to never bring death, but always give life, to always proclaim Jesus to everybody who is in bondage to sin because Jesus is the only key to unlock the shackles and set them free. We pray, Father, that instead of your blood staining our hands, that your blood be the power that washes us clean and gives us life like never before. We pray this in the holy and powerful name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Jesus can set you free. Jesus will set you free. There's not a price to be paid. He's paid the price already. He asks you, come to me. Come to me. The thing that we want is somebody to tap us. We want him to tap us on the head and and make it all okay and everything will go away. And he doesn't work that way. He says, come and follow me. And I'll take you to places that you've never been. I didn't touch one of the words in here where Jesus says that God was going to do things through him that would amaze you. What would it take for you to be amazed? That's what he wants to do. If you're not a Christ follower, if you've never committed your life to Jesus, I ask you to do that this morning. I'm going to have a hymn of invitation like we do every week. I'll ask you to come down. Tell me about it, that you want to make that commitment to Jesus. And I ask the church to repent. Lord, we've got to do things differently. We've got to change. We've got to want to reach 80 million Muslims, and there's only 5,000 of us. In Atlanta, there's going to be 9 million people in 2020, and there's 35 churches. Numbers are getting about the same. It's work to be done. Let's stand. Make your commitment as we sing.